Um, okay, what do we think of Johnson? We're gonna go. We're gonna start with Dunn, but just as a question. Is that the wrong question? <laughs> How's your weekend? Short. Um, yeah. hmm. Short. Okay. Um, but didn't Johnson make it seem long? <laughs> How's that a way for getting those two questions together? Ready for your surprise Johnson quiz? Yes. <laughs> you always are. Okay. Um, what do you mean? Notes. Well, so like which ones? Uh, Diana. It was. It was. Um, something about. Uh, it was like the sun's chariot, and I had to look up something about Apollo and yeah, the chariot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, but you looked it all up, so you're ready for the quiz. Yeah, I just don't enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> How very sad. Have you taken a mythology course? There is one. It's good. Well, my, my high school didn't offer it. There's one here. There's one here? Yeah. Well, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're Johnson. <laughs> okay. Um, if there were a quiz... One question would be, what does Johnson say his best piece of poetry is? <laughs> Anyone else get it? Or are you just looking right at it? Did you remember? Gabriel, did you remember that? Or was, yeah. Yeah, okay. Everyone, does everyone remember that? The epitaph on his son um, asked say, here doth lie Ben Johnson, his best piece of poetry. Yeah, it's really moving. Um, okay, well, le let's finish looking at the canonization, uh, which is on page 97 of this book. Um, and uh, just to, um, this week after that, we'll do Johnson and Herrick. Um, the standard thing to say, um, and it's true enough that you should hear it, is that the two strands of poetry in early 17th century England are the metaphysical strand of which Dunn is basically the famous originator. Um, metaphysical conceits are those conceits where um, just the strangest imagery is forced to work, um, is drawn out beyond anything that you would ordinarily get in a flash of metaphorical insight, um, and you start looking at the details and make sure the details work also. Um, and the other um, form of poetry is, is the form known as the Cavalier Poets. Um, they tended to be loyalists in the English Civil War. That's one reason they got the name. The loyalists were called the Cavaliers. Um, but the Cavalier Poets were also called the Sons of Ben, um, the Ben being this Ben. Um, and they wrote really beautiful lyrics that are beautiful, um, just immediately beautiful. You can tell um, they're beautiful from the very start. And um, the one that whom we're going to read is Herrick, who's um, probably the best of them. Um, so we're going, there's a little bit of a bifurcation you should be aware of in 17th century poetry. Um, and, and two different traditions are starting now. 
Um, that bifurcation in one way or another, somewhat subterraneanly, but still, um, reappears in the 20th century, where T.S. Eliot basically <coughs> says that um, Dunn has been wrongly forgotten. Remember that Dryden, I told you this before, um, Dryden has a bunch of poems, a, a little um, pamphlet of poems called The Satires of Dr. Dunn Versified. Um, and the kinds of poetic thinking, metaphysical thinking that Dunn engaged in, um, fell out of favor in um, the 18th century and didn't, no one really read very much of Dunn um, they, or, or um, the metaphysical poets until the 20th century again. And it was really in the 20th century that people like Eliot said it was a terrible thing when the history of poetry dropped Dunn and went in the direction of Romanticism. Um, in Dunn, what you have is much more powerful thinking um, and much more, a much more powerful way of um, bringing poetic language and really hard thinking together. Um, and it's really important that we return to Dunn-like poetry. And it was really the first half of the 20th century that criticism also rediscovered Dunn and the metaphysical poets um, and um, tried to reimagine criticism um, as um, on the lines of figuring out what it was that Dunn did so well. And the canonization was one of the um, poems that uh, was central to that new project. It's actually, have people heard the term the new criticism? Um, no? So if you take a theory class, you should hear it. Um, the new criticism is the um, essentially invented in the United States by a critic named William Wimsatt and in England by a critic named William Empson. Um, and what they said was what you need to know about a poem and what a poem means is what's in the poem. And if um, you needed to know more, there'd be more in the poem. Um, trying to understand a poem or explain a poem by looking at biography or external circumstances and so on, um, all of that is to miss the point that poems are um, are, are designed to be, and when successful, will be self-contained. And um, the famous book that one of the new critics wrote, a, a guy named Clayanth Brooks, who I think John Burt knew. Um, I saw him once give a talk, but I think John Burt actually knew him. Um, was, uh, the name of his book was called The Well-Wrought Urn. And the idea is that, the, that what a poem is, is a well-wrought urn. Uh, where does that line come from? Anyone but Gabriel? Gabriel, where does the line come from? Do you know? Um, ben Johnson. No. All right. You lose. Um, the canonization. Um, so let's go back to it. So remember, we did the first stanza. Um, and what the older man speaker speaking that stanza is basically saying to everyone else, um, do whatever you want, just let me love. Um, here's this woman I love, and I don't care about anything else. And there's a whole lot of that in Dunn. It's one reason to think of um, Dunn's poetry not caring about what, what's outside 
his poetry. So there's all this other stuff going on, um, and that's all fine. Do whatever you want with it as long as you let me love. For God's sake, hold your tongue and let me love. Or if you don't want to hold your tongue, if you've got something to say, go ahead. Chide my palsy or my gout. My five gray hairs, a ruined fortune, flout. With wealth your state, your mind with arts improve. Take you a course, get you a place. Observe his honor or his grace, or the king's real or his stamped face. Contemplate. What you will approve, so you will let me love. So do whatever you want as long as you let me love. And um, what he wants to know is why he can't be left alone, or why the two of them can't be left alone. Alas, alas, who's injured by my love, he asks. What's wrong with the fact that we love each other, that I love this person? What merchant's ships have my sighs drowned? Who says my tears have overflowed his ground? Just paraphrase that. Those two lines, put them together and paraphrase. Yeah. I mean, what, what have my actions done? Like, what... What commerce has been damaged, and what else, like what agriculture has been damaged as well? Yeah, yeah. Um, when did my colds a forward spring remove? So when was it the fact that I was feeling um, cold or being being made to feel cold? What did that ever do to the coming of springtime? When did the heats which my veins fill add one more to the plaguey bill? So the fact that I felt um, all hot and bothered and, and full of, of um, desire, that didn't do anything to the number of people reported as having died in the plague. None of this did anything to the world. Soldiers find wars, and lawyers find out still litigious men which quarrels move, though she and I do love. So don't worry, soldiers. You'll find wars to fight in. Don't worry, lawyers. You'll find litigious men who will hire you for their lawsuits, um, for their quarrels, um, who will sue because they're, they're having a quarrel with someone. And the fact that she and I love isn't going to ruin any of that for you, for those of you who are so anxious to make money. Call us what you will. So now he's going back to the first stanza. Call us what you will. Oh, wait. Are, no. Okay. Call us what you will. We're made such by love. Whatever you call us, I'll accept that. Call us what you will. We're made such by love. Call her one, me, another fly. So what does that mean, we're made such by love? Yes. I mean, it's, I mean, I guess it's sort of self-deprecating. It's like, you know, if you want to call me a lovesick idiot, if you want to say that that makes me an ass, if you want to say that makes me a worm, like, sure. Mm -hmm. It does. Uh-huh. It's just, that's my problem, not yours. Right, exactly. So whatever you call us, we got to be that way because of love. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's totally fine. Um, yeah. No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so the note says that a fly is a moth, and the next mm -hmm. line's a taper, which is a candle, so yeah. showing that we're, I'm attracted to her because she's a bright light, and I'm attracted to bright lights. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so, if you want to call us moths, that's fine. 
um, call her one, me another fly. Um, that's fly as in butterfly. So butterfly is a pretty moth, essentially. So call her one, me another fly. Um, we're made that way by love. Um, I think the line has another meaning, too. Another meaning added to it. Um, call us what you will, we're made such by love. Um, how would you, what, what's, the, what's the tone of that? What is he saying to the person there? First he says, hold your tongue in line one. But then he says, okay, you can chide my palsy or my gout if you want. Do whatever you want. I don't care. Just, just um, let me love. Call me what you will. Call us both what you will. Um, we're made such by love. What's the, what is the tone there besides leave me alone? Yeah. Well, it's defiant or mm -hmm. because he's, he's satisfied with his love that it doesn't matter if they're, uh, like it won't affect them. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's defiant because whatever you, whatever you, you know, um, we'll suck it up. We don't care. Um, whatever we are, we're made that way by love. Yeah. It also seems a bit defensive, like, you know, you can call me this and it's fine, I am, but just know it's not my fault. Love made me this, not okay. me. Okay. Um, Lauren? It says, um, it's talking about tongue and language, saying there's a namelessness to this love, no matter what um, language that's a comment that sort of dissolves Okay, all right, so um, yeah, there's no label that, all labels are equally good, which means no label um, is somehow g going to stick in a way that, that defines it. Is, are you saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is also coming off of the, the last line, which is though she and I do love, which is mm -hmm. the first time that we were introduced to a partner. Yep. Like up until that point, it was just, you're saying, you know, hold your tongue and let me love, that could easily be someone who's in, in an unrequited situation. But mm -hmm. by saying, we are made such by love, he's strongly affirming that, like, at least in his opinion, they're really, like, true to each other, and she's of the same opinion as he is about the situation. Okay, so, yeah, so the us there really matters. Yeah, good. Um, if, not quite sure how to ask this question, but... Um, in what kind of comedy routine would the performer say something like, say what you want, call me what you will, um, give me a situation. Give me a situation? Really? No idea what you're talking about. A guy falls in love with someone he shouldn't, like an old woman or a young Yeah, yeah, but what kind of routine would that be? Be improv. Yeah, improv. So improv is basically, here's the situation. Um, I'm a doctor, you're a patient. Um, do you know what I'm referring to in that one? I have full-blown AIDS. No, all right. Um, here's, give me a situation, see what I can do with it. Um, 
And so the whole point about improv is to take any situation that, that audience members throw at you and um, be skillful enough and quick enough and clever enough to do something good with it. They're also improvised. I mean, it's, it's even more com um, common with improvised singers and improvised songwriters that you tell them what you want a song about and then they'll sing you a rhyming song about it. Um, and the whole point, you know that the big thing about comedy is heckling, right? That um, if you do live comedy, people are going to heckle you and that's just what happens and then some people just totally lose it and then um, they get fired by the TV shows that their stars on and stuff like that. But the whole point about heckling is that the comedian is supposed to be able to deal with the heckling and turn it to good use. There's a, there's a give and take, which sometimes gets rough between the audience and the comedian. Um, John Lennon and Harry Nielsen were arrested for heckling the Smothers Brothers. You probably don't know who any of those people are. Um, do you know who John Lennon is? Yeah, okay. Smothers Brothers, no. Harry Nielsen, no. You do know Harry Nielsen. Good. Yes, you should. Oblio. Uh, the Smothers Brothers? Sort of. Sort um, of. Look them up on YouTube. Anyhow, they were doing a routine in Las Vegas, and uh, John Lennon and Harry Nielsen started heckling them and got into a lot of trouble. John Lennon. Trouble. Um, but that's part of what goes on in comedy routines, is that, is that good comedians can deal with the heckling um, and can make something of it. So he's saying something like that. Call us what you will, we're made such by love. For example, what if this heckler, because that's who this is addressed to, it's a heckler, right? For God's sake, hold your tongue and let me love, or chide my palsy, or my gout, my five gray hairs, a ruined fortune flout. Um, do all that. And then in stanza three, okay, call us what you will. We're made such by love. So what is he going to do with whatever the heckler calls him? What's he going to improvise? Yeah. He's going to turn it into a poetic conceit. Yeah. He's going to turn it into a, po into a poetic conceit. And Dunn can do it. Most people can't. But Dunn, what he's basically saying is whatever you want to do, whatever insult you want to fling at us, um, I can turn it into an image of love. So if you say we're both flies, you know, basically it's like the flea, which he's also part of his cleverness was to turn, turn that into an image of, of the most sacred love imaginable, um, love of the Holy Trinity itself or the love within the Trinity for each of its members. Um, so now, okay, not a flea, but a fly, a moth, um, a, a, a nighttime butterfly. So try this, call her one, me another fly. Okay, we're not only flies, we're tapers. We're the candles that attract the flies. We're tapers too, and at our own cost, die. Um, how does what does that mean? Literally, we're tapers too. We're candles too, and at our own cost, die. Right. So it's they they die by melting down. Um, that's at their own cost. Um, now, it's no longer, I remember actually when I was a freshman, um, my um, English teacher rebuked the entire class for not knowing what we shouldn't have known because it's no longer true, but that the word die is slang for orgasm. Um, that's it, that you only learned that in English classes. Um, but from the 17th through the 20th century, see, you guys didn't know it, right? But I'm not, no, sorry? You know it if you take 
Um, you mean l'optimum, yeah. Um, but in English, it's the verb. Um, I mean, sometimes you'll get like, oh, I'm dying. But um, it's, um, it's a standard slang word for orgasm from the 17th to the 20th century. Um, if you know Yeats's poem, Sailing to Byzantium, is that a poem? Um, that is no country. You know it? Can you recite it? Oh, I know. Yeah, whence the Cormac McCarthy title. Um, that is no country for old men, the young in one another's arms, birds in the trees, those dying generations at their song. And Yeats wants the word dying there to mean um, both that they're generations, that all that lives must die, but that dying also means that they're at a time in their life where they're engaged in erotic um, experience, um, not knowing that ironically erotic experience is also going to mean that they're going to pass away as a new generation replaces them. Um, but if, but it's a standard, very old pun in English, dying for having sex. Um, and yeah, it, it does survive in the modern French. What is le petit mort? Uh, orgasm. Orgasm, yeah. Um, it's, um, so it's it that's a standard um, joke, uh, not always a joke either. Um, it's in Antony and Cleopatra. Um, Ina Barbas says to Antony, Antony says, "I have to leave and go to Rome. Um, I've got to leave." And Ina Barbas says, um, "If you abandon Cleopatra, she'll die for it." And Antony says, nevertheless, I have to go. And Nina Barbas, who's a, who's a bit of a clown, says, I've seen her die a thousand times and on much less provocation. Um, and the joke there is, yeah, she has a lot of sex with a lot of people. And also, she's very dramatic. Um, so to say we're tapers too and at our own cost die um, means, again, leave us alone. Um, we die. Um, we have sex, but we're not um, taking, um, this isn't affecting anyone else. This isn't bothering anyone else. So we fly into each other's flames. We therefore die by flying into each other's flames. But we die because we're also the wax that's melting um, as the flames burn. And flying into each other's flames and melting into wax, all of that is something that we do when we're together. And we do die. Um, in the sexual sense of die. Um, and we're not bothering anyone else. Whatever it costs, the fact that we're doing this is just something that we're doing. And it also has behind it, and, and the reason for this slang, at least in English, was a humoral theory that um, every, at least for males, every time a male had an orgasm, he was reducing his life by a few minutes that there was um, a certain amount of life force within you. And if, any of, if you got rid of any of it, um, there was that much less life force within you. Um, it's, this is also, um, although uh, Jones doesn't print this sonnet, the Shakespeare sonnet, the expense of spirit and a waste of shame um, is referring to that. The expense of spirit and a waste of shame is lust in action. Um, so it's the expenditure of spirit is the idea, that semen somehow st comes from the human spirit, is the, is the um, um, condensation of human spirit. And its expenditure 
is a loss of spirit. So that was, that was science of physiology at the time. Um, and that's what Dunn is referring to, that the tapers are melting away, liquefying. Um, the moths or flies are burning. But they're not bothering anyone. So call us what you will. Try anything on us. We're made such by love. I can figure out a way that I can turn that into a true thing which represents my love, our love. Call her one, me another fly. We're tapers too, and at our own cost I. And we and us find the eagle and the dove. So, yes, I guess footnote is climax, believed life curtailing. That's climax. That's the footnote on, on die. Climax, believed life curtailing. Curtailing. So you can call us an eagle, that is um, the bird of empire. You can call us a dove, the bird of peace. The phoenix riddle hath more wit by us. Um, we two being one are it. So the riddle of the phoenix, does anyone have a sense what that would be? Not a mythology you looked up? I have a guess. Okay. Which came first, the phoenix or the flame? Okay, good. Yeah, it's from yeah. Harry That's why. It's from Harry Potter. Is it really? <laughs> I had forgotten. <laughs> and the phoenix said to the flame, "You always come first. Um, the phoenix. What's the what's the mythology of the phoenix? Why phoenix and flame? Yeah, there's only one phoenix at any time. And so the phoenix lives 500 years and then dies, and then out of its own ashes, it's reborn. So the phoenix is self-generating. Um, there's only one bird, um, and yet there's more than one because the phoenix does die, much the way the two lovers die. And that death produces birth, much as sexual dying produces birth, and then the phoenix arises again. So the phoenix riddle hath more wit by us we're able to make sense of that riddle. We two being one are it. So to one neutral thing, both sexes fit. The phoenix is a really good image for both of us, one neutral thing, because we don't know whether the phoenix is male or female, since there's only one of it, and since it gives birth to itself. So, so to one neutral thing, both sexes fit. We die and rise the same and prove mysterious by this love. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we're like the phoenix. We die and we rise again. We die in a sexual sense, and yet we're still alive after we've died in this sexual sense. And what else is implicit in the word rise? Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. That is that um, even though we've had sex, we're ready for it really soon afterwards. Um, it doesn't take long to be ready again, um, for me to be ready again. We can die by it, he goes on pursuing the pun, but now making it somewhat more serious. We can die by it, if not live by love. So if we can't live by love, if everyone's against it, at least we can die by it. We can die by it if not live by love. And if unfit for tombs and hearse our legend be, it will be fit for verse. So what does legend mean there? Yeah. 
Okay, so if our if our myth isn't fit for a tomb um, or a hearse, at least maybe because it's too long, it's at least fit for verse. There could be a poem for it. What else does legend mean? What does legend mean on a on a coin? What is the legend of a coin? Okay, maps legend is the key for reading the map. Um, and why would that be the word legend? Do you know? It's actually it's actually something you read. It's it's um, from the word from a root meaning to read. Um, we get the word law has the same root lex, um, lex legis, um, and the law is is written down and something to be read. Um, it literally means to pick, but it eventually came to mean to read. Um, a legend on a coin is the is what's written on a coin. A legend on a medallion is what's written on a medallion. A legend. Um, sometimes you get legends. Actually, I think they actually are called in graphic novels the the um, non spoken writing. I think one of the one of the terms for that is is legend. Um, so it's it's um, an inscription on a coin or on a hearse or on a tomb. Um, you can read a legend on a gravestone. If you're reading a legend on a gravestone, it may simply be um, born 1853, died 1940, and that can be the legend. Um, so our legend, it does mean both those things. Our legend, if it's not fit for a tomb or a hearse, at least it will be fit for verse, namely for this poem itself. So notice the poem really is about how Dunn writes poems. He's saying, here's a poem about her and me and about how what we do is fit for verse, is fit for poetry. So here's the poem it's fit for. Um, and it may be the wrong thing. It may be unfit in the sense of the wrong thing for tombs or hearses, but it's the right thing for verse. And if no piece of chronicle we prove, if we don't become, what would that mean, actually? I'm just going to ask you instead of saying. What would it mean not to be a piece of chronicle? If we prove not to be a piece of chronicle? Appear in history. Yeah, if we're not part of the history. If when the chronicles of our time are written, we don't appear, we're not a piece of that. Um, it doesn't matter. Um, we'll build in sonnets pretty rooms. So again, we may not be part of the chronicle, not part of the history of our time, but in sonnets we'll have pretty rooms that we can live in. Um, anyone know what a room would be as a metaphor in a sonnet? What the, He's actually referring to an Italian word here, um, but a word that was much more, car its English translation was much more current and poetic. Yeah. Yeah, a stanza. Um, in Italian, stanza means room. Um, is a, there's a cognate word in French. Um, so we'll build in sonnets pretty rooms. We'll live in stanzas. We'll live in the stanzas of sonnets, in the rooms of sonnets. We'll build in sonnets pretty rooms. As well, a well-wrought urn becomes the greatest ashes as half-acre tombs. What does that mean?
just unpack the grammar there, unpack the syntax. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and a well-wrought urn is as beautiful for the ashes of the great as a half-acre tomb would be. You don't need a half-acre tomb in order to honor the great. Um, a well-wrought urn will do just as well. Size doesn't matter um, for fun funer funeral um, memorials. So as well, a well-wrought urn becomes the greatest ashes as half-acre tombs do. And by these hymns, what hymns? Yeah, these sonnets, these, this verse. And by these hymns, all shall approve us canonized for love. So there's the title, will be canonized in the poems that love allows us to make of the insults that are thrown at us. Um, say whatever you want, and I can turn it into some beautiful description of love. And all shall approve us will be canonized for love, and thus invoke us. Who will invoke us? Yeah, all those who, who approve of us will invoke us. Um, the way you invoke a muse. And they will say to us, you whom reverend love made one another's hermitage. So there again is a um, odd metaphor. What's a hermitage? Isolated place where you live. Yeah, a place where a hermit would live. Um, so they each is the hermitage of the other. They live alone. Each one lives alone in the presence or company or in the love of the other. So you whom reverend love, because these are holy hermits, you whom reverend love made one another's hermitage, you to whom love was peace that now is rage. So for you love was peace. Now love has become rage. You, who did the whole world's soul contract and drove into the glasses of your eyes, so made such mirrors and such spies that they did all to you epitomize. So you, who did the whole world's soul contract and drove it, drove the whole world's soul into the glasses of your eyes, um, excuse me, you who did the whole world soul contract and drove into the glasses of your eyes countries, towns, courts. So you who were everything to each other, who could put into the glasses of your eyes, into the mirrors that your eyes were, countries, towns, and courts. And here what he's thinking of, he, he uses this image in other poems, is that you can look in someone's eye and see everything they're seeing. It's all reflected in their eye. So you who brought the whole world into your eyes when you looked at each other. They were, your eyes were made such mirrors and such spies that they did all to you epitomize. Um, you saw each other in each other's eyes, and you saw yourself, and you were everything to each other. Um, everyone 
will invoke us this way, saying, you who did all this, please beg from above a pattern of your love. We want to love the way you're doing it. So that idea, a pattern of your love, that would be the poem. That is, a poem is a patterned creation, which the very idea of a pattern is that there is structure. Um, and that structure has a kind of repetitive quality. That is, the structure itself is repetitive. That's a description of a poem. A poem is patterned language. Um, so here's a poem that others will read and think of. I mean, look at the audacity here. What he's basically saying is this is the poem people will think of when they want to think of a love poem because they're in love. They will want to talk to each other the way I'm describing love in this poem. So it's a pretty strong, I mean, it's, it's a, there's no particular reason to think that Dunn thought this was his most central poem, um, or most central love poem. But it's a pretty strong poem about the relationship of the kind of work that goes into producing conceits and producing poetic thought, poetic metaphors, poetic patterns, um, the relation of that kind of, of work to the experience of love. Um, love is what makes it possible for you to think in such a way that everything turns out to be an image of love. Love makes everything into an image of love. And the poem is the proof of that. The fact that there is love poetry is the proof of that. The fact that love poetry uses metaphors, um, and those metaphors can come from anywhere and still stand for love, is the proof of that. So the poem is a metaphor for love. Um, and love is a thing that looks that can, that can make anything a metaphor for it. And the poem is the proof that love is the thing that can make anything a metaphor for love. Um, yeah, that's a pretty cool poem. OK, Johnson, did I ask you what you thought of him? What did you think of him? <laughs> um, Why don't, did you find him a relief after Dunn, or did you find him, I don't know, the opposite of a relief? What's the opposite of a relief? Oh, no, where's Dunn? A disappointment after Dunn. He wondered out loud. No particular feelings? I thought his poetry was a lot simpler than Dunn. It's much more straightforward. Uh huh. Except for the illusions that you can't stand to think of. Yeah. But other than that, it wasn't like, I, at least I didn't notice any like, great metaphors or just these complete opposites. Like, you don't have to read the poem like five times to figure out what's going on. You only read it twice. Okay. Okay. I thought he was a lot less funny. A lot less funny. Yeah. yeah. 
like, I, I missed, like, I don't know. I thought Don was, like, like almost, like, modern, like, humor. Sort of, uh -huh. like, ironic. Yeah. And Johnson. Okay. Um, yeah, what were you going to say? Um, was any of it delightful? Was any of it sad? Yeah. Which one? There are a couple. Um, yeah, so is that like at, uh, what page is that? Oh, the hymn to Cynthia. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Cynthia is um, the goddess of the moon and is essentially a representation of Queen Elizabeth. Um, the moon, um, lots of people, lots of the mytholo mythological um, accounts of uh, Elizabeth call her Cynthia. Um, so, yeah, let's look at Queen and Huntress. That's a famous one. Do you want to read it? Sure. Yay. Queen and Huntress, chaste and fair, now the sun is laid to sleep. Seated in thy silver chair, state is wanted by thy keep. Hesperus entreats thy light, goddess excellently bright. Earth, let not thy envious shade dare, to, dare itself to compose the new shining orb that's made. Heaven to clear when day did close. Blesses then with which thy goddess excellently bright. Lay thy bow of pearl apart in thy crystal shining quiver. Give unto the flying heart space to breathe, how short soever. Thou that makes the day of night, God is excellently bright. Great. Yeah, so it's a, it, this is from a mask. Um, it's a song to Cynthia. Um, and you see immediately that it's about the moon. Queen and huntress, chaste and fair. Um, the moon is the goddess Diana, is the goddess of chastity. Is this, did you look that up or did you know that? I did not. Yeah, okay, good. Um, and Elizabeth, of course, is the virgin queen. Queen and huntress, chaste and fair. Now the sun is laid to sleep, so it's, um, the sun has just gone down. Seated in thy silver chair, state in wonted manner keep. So keep your state the way you are used to doing, the way you usually do it. Hesperus entreats thy light, goddess excellently bright. Um, the footnote tells you Hesperus is evening. Um, I think it's actually probably not evening, but the evening star. Um, that is, it's Venus setting right after sunset, um, which is Venus is the evening star. Um, when, yeah? What was the poem that focused on Cynthia that we read earlier in the semester? Um, well, we read Raleigh on Cynthia. Is that what you're thinking of? Probably. Um, Other people definitely mentioned. Yeah. I, it's like an entire long, long, really long. Um, Did Cynthia come from here on Leander? I don't recall that it was, she it was did. It's Hero and Leander-esque poem, if not actually. Yeah, no, I think it's probably Raleigh. Um, Okay, if you find it, say. Um, so if Hesperus is the evening star, then just so you know astronomically, 
the full moon rises in the east, Hesperus, or the evening star is setting in the west. So that so that the um, the description here is just of these two lights um, apparently reflecting each other across the night sky um, from one horizon to the other. Um, it's they're both actually reflecting sunlight. But, right. Okay. Um, Earth, let not thy envious shade dare itself to interpose. What would that mean? An eclipse, a lunar eclipse. Um, so don't let the Earth's um, shadow interpose between um, the sun and the full moon. Cynthia's shining orb was made heaven to clear when day did close. Um, so it'll clear up all of heaven, just make it lucid and beautiful. Bless us then with wished sight, goddess, excellently bright. Lay thy bow of pearl apart and thy crystal shining quiver. Give unto the flying heart space to breathe, how short soever. It's nighttime. Um, let the heart flying away from you um, because you're hunting it. But it's also the pun on heart that we saw in whom? Yeah. In Wyatt, yeah. Um, Give unto the flying heart space to breathe, how short soever, thou that makes a day of night, goddess excellently bright. So notice also the rhymes in light, sight, night, the second to last lines of each stanza, and they're all rhyming with bright um, as the refrain at the end of each stanza. So that's a luminous poem, I think. Yeah. <laughs> because Elizabeth was um, representing herself for various political reasons, um, it was really important for her to represent herself to the world as the Virgin Queen. And um, as the Virgin Queen, um, she was a counterpart, a Protestant counterpart to the cult of the Virgin Mary. The idea would be that um, if those who were against England and its Protestant revolution, the Catholics, um, were um, becoming strongly interested in the Virgin Mary, which they were, um, Cynthia or would represent the Virgin Queen of England for whom England itself was her um, charge and her child rather than um, having a child of her own. So that was um, a huge part of um, Elizabethan propaganda and the way Elizabeth and her court represented her to the world. The moon is also the governess of tides, um, to quote, or to misquote Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, it's because of the moon that the tides go in and out. And as the queen of the sea, um, which is um, the ocean to Cynthia, um, as the queen of the sea, um, it's another really good thing um, to work for Elizabeth. So it's chastity and um, um, virginity and um, martial power, the ability to um, defend herself against men. In A Midsummer Night's Dream, um, she's called a, a vestal throned in the West. 
Um, and what happens is Oberon, do people know the play? Um, this is where the love potion comes from that um, Puck and Oberon put on um, various people's eyes. Um, Oberon describes it as um, he saw Cupid um, raise his bow and attempt to strike a virgin or a vestal thrown it in the west. Um, so Cupid shot his arrow at Queen Elizabeth. Um, but the moon, seeing this, um, quenched his arrow so that it fell to the ground and struck a flower. And it's that flower that produces the love potion. Um, so in A Midsummer Night's Dream also, um, the idea is that um, virginity and chastity, um, it's also what we saw in Book Three of the Fairy Queen, virginity and chastity um, are this great um, self-purifying uh, mode of being in the world, and Queen Elizabeth represents that. Um, so she's, you're right, she's, she, um, if you were to say, plus what other goddess, it would probably be Athena. Um, but the really important thing is, is um, chastity and power going together, chastity, and command and self-command going together. Um, it's, she, she probably is, and she certainly, um, comes, she's, she's immaculately conceived, since so she comes right out of Zeus's head, um, but it's not one of her important attributes, that is, people don't say, oh, she, she's not the goddess of virginity, I mean, that's the simple answer, uh, she's not the goddess of virginity, and, and Diana slash the moon is. Um, partly because of uh, um, lunar cycles being menstrual cycles. That is, um, she never misses a cycle. Um, and the, um, so, the, so, so that um, the purity of her motion through the heaven every month is um, and and also the fact that there's nothing around her. That is, uh, the moon is always moving against the fixed stars, against the sun, against the other planets, um, so that there's a certain loneliness that people perceive in the way the moon is always restlessly ranging. Um, all of that fits really well with mythology, and that you see her at night. That she's like a nighttime huntress. She's not um, staying in at night unlike um, any domestic goddesses. Um, think all of those things at one time or another are associated with her. And that's, what, that's how Elizabeth wanted to be seen, always vigilant, always on guard, um, um, able to defend herself and pure in that sense. Um, so yeah, that's, and that's part of what Johnson is, is um, Contributing to um, very beautifully. Um, let's yeah. Would he have written this for her for his own political <coughs> reasons, or is it more of a self-motivated? No, I really just like her a lot. Sort of no, no, no. It's there were there were lots of theatricals that were written both for her and then even more so for James. Right. Um, so this is this is from one of those theatricals. Um, the stuff to Celia. Um, is, is, um, those are also from, um, from plays and masks and so on. 
um, but they're not to a particular famous person, presumably. Um, so, you know, the most famous song to Celia is on page 138. Um, Drink to me only with thine eyes, and I will pledge with mine. Or leave a kiss but in the cup, and I'll not look for wine. Um, that might be a version of the canonization. That, that would be um, the way Johnson wrote, writes that kind of poem. So um, you can drink with your eyes. You don't have to drink to me with a goblet um, because our love is so pure that all you need to do is drink to me with your eyes, and I will do the same back to you. I will pledge with mine. Again, not by raising a goblet to a pledge and then drinking it down, but only looking at you. Or leave a kiss but in the cup, and I'll not look for wine. What I want, what intoxicates me, is the purity of your kiss. The thirst that from the soul doth rise doth ask a drink divine. So this is not bodily thirst. This is the thirst that rises from the soul, so it wants a divine drink. But might I of Jove's nectar sup, I would not change for thine. So even if I could drink the nectar of the gods, I wouldn't exchange the nectar of your love, of your kiss, for that. I sent thee late a rosy wreath, not so much honoring thee as giving it a hope that there it could not withered be. So what's the witty reversal here? Why did he send her the roses? Yeah, because it would be good for the roses. Um, so not, to, not so that you should have some nice roses, but so that these roses should have some nice you. Um, I sent thee late a rosy wreath, not so much honoring thee as giving it a hope that there it could not withered be. But thou thereon didst only breathe and sensed it back to me. So you breathed the roses, presumably you, sm you smelled them, and then you sent them back to me. Um, out of rejection or out of reciprocation? Or is he turning the idea of rejection into reciprocation? I sent you roses, you sent me roses. The same roses I sent you, it's love. Um, but don't make it too much into a parody of that. Um, it's maybe love can do that. Maybe other people wouldn't understand that you weren't rejecting them but that, um, that we have this incredibly delicate, um, ethereal relationship. But thou thereon didst only breathe and sensed it back to me, since when it grows and smells, I swear not of itself but thee. So now I sniff the roses because they smell of you rather than of roses, because you, you are more beautiful and more and your adder is more essential than that of roses. Yeah? Um, aren't we, I mean, the, since when it grows, like, cut flowers are dead flowers, so is he also saying, like, you, you literally brought flowers back to life? Um, or are we supposed to be like, it was just for the meeting? Oh, that's nice. No, that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, well, I sent thee late a rosy wreath, not so much honoring thee as giving it a hope that there could not withered be. That is, yeah, no, clearly, no, you're, you're, I hadn't thought of that, but you're obviously right. That is that um, 
I had this these roses, and I said, look, you're not going to die because I'm sending you to her. Um, and that way the roses could hope that they'd live forever, even though they'd been cut. Um, and she breathes on the roses and sends... Um, she breathes on the wreath and sends it back. And, yeah, since when it grows. Um, and so that's great. It worked. Um, and that means also that it's not... She's not just rejecting them. Um, he's really good. I mean, it's a little bit hard to... Um, tease out the difference between his very, very clever wit. Um, he's witty, he's just as witty as Dunn is, um, but not nearly as flashy. Um, but part of it is, uh, l let's look at the, um, I mean, there's some, there's some mean poems, but let's look at the um, invitation to a friend uh, for dinner, um, which is where... Page 129, thank you. Um, inviting a friend to supper. Do you want to read it? Tonight, Grace, so both my poor house and I do equally desire your company. Not that we think us worthy such a guest, but that your worth will dignify our feast. With those that come, whose grace may make that seem something which else could hope for no esteem. It is the fair acceptance, sir, creates the entertainment perfect, not the tates. Yet shall you have to rectify your palate as olive capers or some better salad, ushering the mutton with a short-legged hen, if we can get her full of eggs and then. Lemons and wine resolves to these a coin. It is not to be despaired of for our money. And though fowl now be scarce, yet there are clerks. The sky not falling, think we may have larks. I tell you of more and why, so you will come. Of partridge, pheasant, woodcock, of which some may yet there may yet be there, and God wit if we can. Nat, rail, and rough too. Howsoever, my man shall read a piece of Virgil, Tactus, Livy, Tacitus, Tacitus, Livy, or some better book to us, of which we'll speak our minds amidst our mean. And I'll profess no verses to repeat. To this, if aught appear which I know not of, that will the pastry, not my paper, show of. Digested cheese and fruit there sure will be, but that which most doth take my muse and me is a pure cup of rich canary wine, which is the mermaid's now, but shall be mine, of which had Horace or Anacreon tasted, their lives as do their lines till now has lasted. Tobacco nectar or the Thespian spring are all but Luther's beer to this I sing. Of this we will sup free, but moderately, and we will have no holy or parrot by. Nor shall our cups make any guilty men, but at our parting we will be as when we innocently met. No simple word that shall be uttered at our mirthful, mirthful board shall make us sad next morning or afraid. The liberty that we'll enjoy tonight. Thank you. Um, so that's a pretty great invitation. Um, and what's, what's really nice about it, I think, is he's just piling up just all the treats that'll be there, it, it, ludicrously. Um, but what the, real, the really important thing is he says, I mean, just, just look at the gracefulness of his turns of phrase and of his compliments. Um, I'd like you, you know, I would really like you to come to supper. Um, it's not that... Um, I have that much to offer you. It's, it's that you have a lot to offer me. 
um, and to offer the other guests that I'm inviting. Um, your worth will dignify our feast with those that come. So for the other people who come, the fact that you're there will make it worth it to them. Um, whose grace may make that seem something which else could hope for no esteem. So your grace will make my dinner party seem worth it. Um, and then he adds, and this is, this is the gracious turn, it is the fair acceptance, sir, creates the entertainment perfect, not the Kate's. So it's not what I have to offer you. It's not the food and the, the um, um, experience that I have to offer you that will make this um, perfect entertainment. It's your fair acceptance of my invitation. Um, it's if you come, just think how great that'll be because you've come. Um, that'll be wonderful. Um, still, here's some stuff that will serve to, to sweeten the pot a little bit. Um, to rectify your palate, you'll have an olive capers or some better salad ushering the mutton. So there'll be um, olives, capers, um, some better salad. There'll be mutton. There'll be short-legged hen if we can get her full of eggs. And then lemons and wine for sauce. These are conies not to be despaired of for our money. And though foul now be scarce, yet there are clarks, the sky not falling, I think we may have larks, um, which are a very fancy treat. Um, I'll tell you of more and lie, so you will come. So he's really, he knows he's really larding it on. And he says, look, I can do this in the poem. Um, see how much I want you to come. Look at all the lies I'm telling about um, how rich and wonderful this will be. But the lies themselves are, in the other sense of fair acceptance, part of the graciousness of this. You should really come because it's going to be a good time. And the way you know it's going to be a good time is just the lovely way that I'm asking you to come. Um, that's the kind of time we're going to have, the kind of time that this poem is showing. Um, take a look at um, the poem um, to Penshurst, which is uh, page 135. Say a little about that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, so, just this wonderful poem about um, this is a this is a tradition that pretty much starts with this poem called the Country House Poem. Um, you'll see one in Marvell also. Um, his poem upon Appleton House. And it's just basically, this is where you want to live. Um, you know, what could be better? Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, there's no doubt that Julian Fellows has something like this in mind mm -hmm. in Downton Abbey. Um, so it's not that it's um, a McMansion, because it isn't. Um, but it's, a, it's just a wonderful place. Thou art not Penshurst, built to envious show of touch or marvel, nor canst boast a row of polished pillars or a roof of gold. Thou hast no lantern whereof tales are told or stair or courts, but stand'st an ancient pile, and these grudged at art reverenced the while. Thou joyest in better marks of soil or of air, of wood, of water, therein thou art fair. Thou hast thy walks for health as well as sport, thy mount, to which the dryads, the spirits of the trees, do resort. 
where Pan and Bacchus their high feasts have made beneath the broad beech and the chestnut shade, that taller tree which of a nut was set at his great birth, where all the muses met, there in the withered bark are cut the names of many a sylvan taken with his flames, and thence the ruddy satyrs oft provoke the lighter fawns to reach thy lady's yoke. Um, we get a little anecdote, which is about how um, James and his son were hunting, and night fell, and they needed a place to stay, and there was Penshurst right there. And um, this is at line 75 or so. Um, and uh, all is there as if thou wert mine, or I reigned here. There's nothing I can wish, wish for which I stay. That found King James when hunting late this way with his brave son, the prince. They saw the fires shine bright on every hearth as the desires of thy panates had been set on flame to entertain them. So there they were hunting and it got dark and, um, and they could easily have gotten lost, but then they saw this beautiful, brilliant, shining house in the woods. And every hearth was lit, um, as though the household gods, the Penates, um, had knew that the king was there, and they all burst into, into a welcoming flame. Um, and, um, or as if the country came with all their zeal to warm their welcome here, as if everyone around came because they knew James was around and they wanted to welcome. What great I will not say, but sudden cheer didst thou then make them. So it wasn't this huge, giant party with um, um, incredibly expensive party. It's that um, the cheer was just there suddenly. It wasn't great, but it was just lovely. Um, and what praise was heaped on thy good lady then, who therein reaped the just reward of her high housewifery, to have her linen plate and all things nigh when she was far, and not a room but dressed as if it had expected such a guest. So they didn't clean up the house because they knew you were coming. It's just such a delightful place that everything in the house is always delightful. These Penshurst are thy praise, and yet not all. Thy lady's noble, fruitful, chaste withal. His children thy great lord may call his own, a fortune in this age but rarely known. So what does that mean? Yeah? His wife's not cheating on him because of his. Yeah, and, and um, it's pretty rare that, that um, uh, a guy can be sure that his kids are his in this age a fortune in this age, but rarely known. They are to have been taught religion. Thence their gentle spirits have sucked innocence. Each morning even they are taught to pray with the whole household and may every day read in their virtuous parents' noble parts the mysteries of manners, arms, and arts. Um, so the Lord and Lady of Penshurst are just, you know, like Downton Abbey, but better. Um, now Penshurst they that will proportion thee with other edifices when they see those proud ambitious heaps and nothing else may say their lords have built but thy lord dwells and that very very famous last line that um, 
and very characteristic of Johnson. It's what you saw also in inviting a friend to supper. That is the idea that dwelling is what counts. Um, that it's not a house as a display of wealth and of power, but as a place to make life pleasantness, a place of pleasantness. And what Johnson is praising here is um, anyone who thinks that it would be a good thing in the world to make life pleasant, to make life a pleasant thing, to make it pleasant not only for themselves but for others. And that's what is so wonderful about Penshurst, is that it's always pleasant there. Um, you know, when you fall in love with a place, this is the kind of poem um, that describes what it means to just be in love with a place, um, to think that that's a place where you can dwell. Um, and that's a, that's a really neat thing, um, very, very gracious in Johnson. Um, what he's doing in a lot of these poems is he's imitating Horace. Um, Horace also wrote with the same kind of um, idea of ease and graciousness. Um, the, a poem that is unfortunately not in this anthology um, is a poem called uh, The Hawk Heart, which is um, about the harvest, and it's a party um, that after the harvest is brought in, all the workers um, are given a party by the Lord. And um, that poem is a little um, more bracing because all the pleasures that they're given, they're gi eventually they, they're drinking, um, they're just having a party and night is falling and they're drinking and it's a warm autumn evening. And um, then he says, but don't be mistaken, um, this... Um, what you're drinking here is not giving you is not giving you to drown your pain, but for to make it spring again. Oh, it isn't there. Oh shoot! What am I thinking of then? How embarrassing. Okay. Um, no, 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 no. There's. All right. No. Okay. Um, I think I must have been confusing with two pensers, which it's which it's an answer to. Yeah. All right. Thank you. So when we get to Herrick, remember that that's Herrick and not Johnson, <laughs> because that would be a bad mistake. Okay. Let's look. Yes, I will. Let's look at. Um, we have five minutes. Let's look at the um, the two epigrams on his first daughter and his first son. Um, That's page 125. There's some other mistake that's crept in here, and I'm not sure what it is, because I'm actually confusing the Herrick poem with another Johnson poem. But OK. Um, so both of these are 12 lines long. These are legends that you would find on a tombstone. So on my first daughter, she died in 1593 at six months old. Does it tell you that? Um, no. Well, um, she was six months old when she died. Um, here lies to each her parents Ruth Mary, the daughter of their youth. What does Ruth mean there? Grief. <coughs> yeah, the note tells you grief. Um, you probably have to see it also as having some of the sense of gentleness. 
Um, yeah. It's the opposite of ruthless. Right, exactly. Um, so ruthless is pitiless or um, the opposite of gentle. Um, Ruth is something like gentleness. And you should, and, and it's a girl's name. It's Ruth from the Bible. Um, that resonance is there. Here lies to each her parents, Ruth, Mary, the daughter of their youth. Yet all heaven's gifts being heaven's due, it makes the father less to rue. Um, so what does that mean? What makes it, makes him less rueful? What reconciles him? Yeah. Yeah. And she's a gift of heaven. And because heaven's gifts are due to heaven, that is due, um, what does it mean to say something is due to something else? Sorry? Yeah. It, yeah, it's, it's, and it's the same, you get the same ambiguity in the word owed. Um, I owe my situation to um, the stupidity of a previous Brandeis president. Um, that means both that, that he was the cause of it or that um, I actually owe him a debt. Um, so um, due to or owed to, those are perfect synonyms because they're ambiguous in the same way. And they mean both one thing is the cause, but because it's the cause, um, you, owe, um, you owe it back. So heaven's gifts or heaven's due come from heaven and therefore are owed to heaven, have to be returned to heaven. And the good thing about that is the reason that makes him less to rue is because that means she must be up in heaven. At six months and she parted hence with safety of her innocence. So she never um, fell into adulthood and sin. She was innocent when she died. Whose soul, heaven's queen, whose name she bears, namely Mary, in comfort of her mother's tears hath placed amongst her virgin train. So the Virgin Mary has put his daughter Mary um, among her followers um, because she too is a virgin having died at six months. Where, while that severed doth remain, that is while the soul remains severed from the body, here you could think of Philip Pullman, where while that severed doth remain, this grave partakes the fleshly birth. So um, the grave where this tombstone is has what part of her? Her body. So her soul is up in heaven and her body is um, here in this grave here. And then that great last line, which cover lightly, gentle earth. Um, cover her body lightly. Well, I think what makes that a great last line is because he knows that this is actually where she is. In other words, he said her soul's in heaven. This part isn't the really important part, except it is. Um, he knows in so, on some level it's not true. He knows that it's an attempt to comfort himself and more, even more so to comfort her mother. No one knows the name of the woman that he was married to. Um, it's all, um, a lot of Johnson's life is obscure. Um, but her mother wants to believe that her daughter is in the Virgin Mary's train. Um, but he's looking at her grave, and he's, call, and he's saying, gentle earth, cover her lightly, because here's where she is.
And then, of course, farewell, that child of my right hand, which is what Benjamin means. Farewell, that child of my right hand, enjoy. My sin was too much hope of thee, loved boy. So you died, why? Why my sin? Why does that come up? Logically. Yeah. No. Um, I think he's, what that indicates is I'm being punished. Why was I punished? I sinned. What was my sin? Too much hope of thee, loved boy. So he's dead. That's a terrible thing. I must have sinned terribly. What sin could be so terrible? Loving him so much. So there's a kind of circular um, sense of guilt here. Seven years that were lent to me, and I thee pay exacted by thy fate on the just day. He died on his seventh birthday. Oh, could I lose all father now? If only I didn't, wasn't still feeling like your father. It's so awful. For why will man lament the state he should envy? You're in heaven. I should be happy about that. To have so soon scaped worlds and flesh's rage, and if no other misery, yet age, rest in soft peace and asked, Say, here doth lie Ben Johnson, his best piece of poetry, for whose sake henceforth all his vows be such as what he loves may never like too much. This is a poem that really divides critics. Um, some think it's like one of the greatest poems ever written. I would be on that side of things. And others think it's a completely incoherent poem that makes no sense at all. Um, and... Yeah, but I don't think I think it's I don't think it's incoherent, and I think that again, if you see the psychology behind it, um, it's he wants to believe something that he can't believe, which is that it's okay um, that his son is dead because he's in heaven, and he makes an argument for that, but he doesn't believe his own argument, um, and that's what makes it so powerful. Um, 